Hey, Stephen here. You listen to this podcast because it helps educate you about the business of energy, the policy and politics of energy and clean tech. It helps you hopefully expand your mind and maybe make your business grow. And as you head into the holidays to regroup, refresh, think about planning for the coming year, treat yourself with a gift that will give you an edge in 2019, a subscription to our premium service, GTM Squared. We're giving you $50 off a membership to GTM Squared if you use the promo code PODCAST between now and the end of the year. Time is running out, so use that promo code PODCAST at gtmsquared.com, and you're going to get $50 off your membership to GTM Squared. Um, With GTM Squared, you get all our live streams and archived panel discussions from our conferences. We have a ton of great conferences throughout the year. Weekly deep dives and data dumps from our writers and regular webinars on energy trends from the editorial team. So go to gtmsquared.com, use the promo code PODCAST, and get $50 off, and support our editorial team. We also want to thank GE for supporting this podcast. Thank you, GE. The Energy Gang is brought to you by GE's new energy storage system called Reservoir. It's a modular lithium-ion battery that can cut construction time by 50%. The product is new, but it's the result of decades of innovation in software, power electronics, and systems design from the team at GE. The company that brought you the revolution in power generation is helping the revolution in battery storage. Find out more about GE's Reservoir Battery Storage System at ge.com slash energy storage. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, it's our year-ender episode, and you know what that means. We're going around the horn with our reflections and prognostications. First, the top trends of the year, then the best energy journalism of 2018, and finally some predictions with a twist. Catherine Hamilton's in Washington, D.C. She's the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine, how are you? I'm great. Getting ready for a big holiday with my big family. Mm, almost every year at this time, we patch you in and you're like, Working on some crazy year-end tax legislation, it feels uh, comparatively mellow for you this year, huh? Oh, no. There was still a lot of work around some crazy tax legislation, but that doesn't stop me from baking every night. And and while they were worrying about how to fund Trump's wall, you weren't, like, lobbying to put solar on it? No, but we're probably going to put solar on the White House. That's true. Actually, uh, the D.C. City Council is moving forward legislation on 100% renewable energy, so we'll see if that hits the highest house in the land. That's actually part of my big trend story of the year. We'll get to that in a minute. First, to Jigger Shaw. He's the president of Generate Capital. He just got off a plane like like half an hour ago, ran to a hotel in Chicago, and now he's making a scene there in the business center with his microphone. Hey, Jigger. Hey. I. You know, it's funny when you pull out the microphone, people think you're an amateur podcaster. They don't know that you're part of the infamous energy gang. <laughs> I understand that they wouldn't let you podcast in the VIP lounge there in the airport. Nope, nope. They do not view me as a, as a VIP. <laughs> so yesterday, Shale and I recorded an episode of The Interchange right after he had jumped off a plane. He literally walked in the door and turned on the mic. And I thought, why don't we put podcast studios in airports or airplanes and trains themselves? Jigger, you want to invest in that? Yeah, let's do it. I'd be the first customer. All right, I'll hit you up again next year. 
Uh, so I, I do want to start off with some sad news before we get into our top trends. The former CEO of Duke Energy, Jim Rogers, passed away this week at 71. And Jim was a very influential guy in the energy world. Jigger, I know you both really liked him and liked to debate him. Can you remind us who he was and what he leaves behind? So I first met Jim in the 90s when I was working with the Consumer Energy Council of America, Ellen Berman. And she put together this big task force to figure out what deregulation would mean. And Jim Rogers chaired that as the CEO of Synergy um, out of Ohio. And... Um, you know, I mean, he has always been a big thinker. And, you know, I think he, he's unconventional, right? Because he comes out of really being almost a lawyer, right, that came in to sort of save um, the Indianapolis utilities and worked with EDF to get the the cap and trade bill passed, which made his utility more valuable. Then he traded up to Synergy, you know, and then he traded up to Duke. And so, you know, he's this guy who extraordinarily accomplished, right? Someone you would never underestimate. And yet, you know, like sort of uh, frustrating for me at times, just because, you know, Duke is one of the largest coal burning utilities in, in, in the country. Yeah, he and I got to be pretty friendly over the last few years. And, you know, I've got a book with a really nice thing he wrote in it, his uh, Lighting lighting the World book. And then he would just, he'd be driving around North Carolina and just call me out of the blue and just start chatting. So I, I was very fond of him too. What did you guys chat about? After he left Duke, he really focused on energy access, and he he was big into distributed energy. He was a true believer in it, even though Duke is, of course, one of the big biggest coal-burning utilities. Uh, what, what did he want to chat with you about, Catherine? Yeah, so I think when he left Duke, he was kind of freed up to do a lot of other things and to think more. Like Jigger said, he was like kind of a big thinker. And so he would just like chew up, chew through ideas with me like, hey, what do you think about this storage thing? Or what do you think about this DER thing? And you know, we would just we would just chat. And I, I think he was kind of freed to do that and really enjoyed it. Well, if any of you have remembrances of Jim Rogers, let us know on Twitter. And we're sad to see him pass on at a at a young age. And uh, yeah, he was very influential. So let's go on to some of the other influential stories of the year now. 2018 was a bad year for big tech companies a good year for anti-democratic politicians. It was a year when gene editing and designer babies became a reality and electric scooters mysteriously overtook our streets and sidewalks. And while most people were focused on the misuse or abuse of consumer tech by the likes of Facebook and Twitter, the steady positive march of clean tech continued. So without further ado, our choices for the forces behind that progress. Catherine, let's start with your choice. I am choosing California. And I know a lot of people say, oh, California is full of those greenies and it's going to fall into the ocean anyway. But California really made some huge changes recently. And it's kind of when you think about if Walmart decided to only sell one kind of toilet paper, that would change the entire market for toilet paper in the world. And it's it's kind of like this with California. California can create and scale markets just by taking decisions as a state. So I like they, that. The, California is the Walmart or Amazon of clean energy. <laughs> exactly. So when you think about what they've done, certainly a few years ago, they did the storage mandate. The, the way they like to work is they'll put a, a hard target slash mandate in place, and then they'll set up incentive programs to try to boost it and make sure people can meet those targets. So then for storage, they did the self-generating incentive program and put a lot of funds out there for it. Well, just this last year, 
And this is this was Governor Brown's kind of last hurrah as governor. They did SB 100, which was, of course, 100 percent clean energy by 2045. They just also um, the California Building Standards Commission finally confirmed the new standards that require solar on new homes in California. And this is huge. This is requiring PV panels to be installed on any new low-rise residential building. And this is not just homes, but also multifamily buildings of three stories or less. So this include this can cover a lot of ground. They've also got provisions for solar plus storage, for solar water heating. This could quadruple the amount of solar in California. So just a, a couple of numbers here. Right now, California install solar on about 150,000 new and existing homes in California every year. And only about 15,000 of those projects are new homes. This provision essentially will allow 80,000 homes a year that are new to have solar on them. So this is going to really affect the market in California. The other huge provision that also just passed was the 100% zero emission bus rule that the California Air Resources Board just put into effect. And this said transit agencies have to convert to all electric transit vehicles by 2040. And all by 2029, all transit bus purchases have to be zero emission vehicles. And these can be electric, but they could also be hydrogen, they could have some natural fuel cells. Um, and they're putting incentives behind this. So they'll have $150,000 incentive for every battery bus, they'll put a $300,000 incentive for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Um, and this is going to really change the market for buses. And what I think this will do for the entire market is this will scale electric buses, which of course, Jigger should be very happy about with his work with BYD. Um, California will do it. They've done this for electric vehicles. 50% of the electric vehicles sold today are in California. This will change the market um, for, I think, for solar integration on new homes and for buses. So I chose California. I wanted to resist this choice a little bit just because we do focus so much on California. But it does top the list. I mean, damn, California, y'all have really stepped up the game. And so much happened in the state this year. It would be hard not to put California on the list. Jigger, your response to Catherine's choice. So over time, I think I've made most of my money off of the policies in California. So I certainly am not going to bite the hand that feeds me. Um, but I, I will say that I do think that California does have its blind spots, and we should acknowledge that. I do think that in the age of droughts, uh, which California has conveniently forgotten about, I don't think they've actually seriously solved their water problem. And that has actually led to, I think, the greater wildfires because everything is just so dry. Um, and and so I do think that California continues to remain um, you know, an enigma, but I think the way in which they try to solve their problems is inspirational to all of us. And so I have to, you know, uh, agree with Catherine on the balance. But I do think that Ca like California really is a car state. I mean, it is one of the original car states, right? And I don't know that they've figured out how to culturally get people to leave personal car ownership behind. That is a totally fair point, Jigger. And I think California lawmakers understand that they need to deal with that challenge, which is why Jerry Brown and other officials have embraced a broader low-carbon strategy that 
covers every sector of the economy. So California really stepped up the game by saying we're not just going to focus on electricity. We are going to focus on transit. We are going to think about how to put policies in place to electrify um, heating and to electrify homes more. So California... I think changed the game this year by recognizing there's a much deeper problem that it needs to deal with. And on the flip side of that, uh, speaking of drought and wildfires, that that's also what thrusts California into the top. I mean, the the wildfires that it has dealt with over the last couple of years have been so tragic and sad and devastating. And, um, you know, this is a state that is going to be dealing with more severe wildfires, which will influence how development happens, uh, everything from, you know, what kind of housing is developed to how utilities manage their operations. This is not an isolated problem anymore. Yeah, and I would just say um, incoming Governor Newsom does have his hands full. Um, as Jigger said, there's some things that they're going to really have to deal with on wildfires with you know resilience and microgrids, but they also have some pretty serious NIMBY issues for low and, income, low and middle income housing. They have to deal with the utility labor market. They're about to, in 2019, they're going to have to move from net metering to mandatory TOU rates. There's a lot on Newsom's plate, um, but they have some laid some serious groundwork. Jigger, what's your pick for the most important trend of the year? So my pick was the uh, big announcement by uh, Maersk out of Denmark uh, to eliminate their carbon emissions by 2050. Um, as many people know, I've been working on shipping since we started the Carbon War Room in 2009. And, you know, Bringing Maersk into the fold uh, with colleagues Alistair Pettigrew and Peter Boyd and others. And, um, you know, while Maersk has always been open-minded to it, I think that people really have a hard time understanding how bad shipping really is for the world. I mean, the vast majority of the black carbon that is in the Arctic ice was deposited there because ships around the world burn bunker fuel, which is basically just tar. And um, and it causes the same amount of cancer-producing chemicals as 50 million cars. And so every ship um, is just so toxic. And I think for Maersk to take seriously um, their responsibilities around decarbonizing shipping and, you know, recognizing the health impacts of the shipping sector is just one of those sleeper stories that I think a lot of folks missed this year. Well, uh, Shale Khan and I had a debate about stories of the year, a, a different format than we're doing here, but we we talked about the most undersold story of the year, and he chose this one, echoing your sentiment that it's something that a lot of people are not paying attention to, but is hugely impactful. Can you walk us through what the announcement actually is first? So Maersk actually said that they would be carbon-free in terms of their, you know, direct emissions. What does that mean? Uh, by 2050. So For a shipping company. Well, it means that they would power their ships with something that's not bunker fuel or diesel or gasoline or LNG, right? But it could be wind power again. But maybe it's nuclear, right? It could be small modular nuclear reactors. I mean, the size of these Maersk ships are ginormous. Think about the largest cruise ship you've ever seen or think thought of. And this is a hundred times larger, right? Like these are, these are like, these are cities that basically are just 
flowing on the water. Their new ships are ginormous. And so I think this is a really a dedication to technology and a dedication to innovation and figuring out how to actually move these ships from, you know, all the places we want them moved because we want access to our goods and services, um, you know, without burning fossil fuels. So, Jigger, do you think this will be like Walmart in California in that with Merck doing it, it'll change the dynamics for the entire industry? Yeah, Maersk controls 20% of all the shipping volume in the world, right? So they're not small. They are much bigger than California and Walmart when it comes to this particular industry. And because of that, they control ports. I mean, part of what they're able to do is say, um, we are going to regulate this port and say, you cannot have access to this port unless you've agreed to reduce carbon emissions, right? I mean, that's how powerful they are. And so I think this is really a huge watershed moment for the entire world. And, 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 and I just can't stress enough how much dirtier bunker fuel is than even coal, right? If you think coal is bad for people, bunker fuel is much, much worse. It's just the bottom dredges of a refinery, the stuff that nobody wants to touch, all the sulfur, all of the things that you just don't know what to do with it. Like you, they put it into the bunker and then let ships burn it in international waters. And, and Jigger, one other thing, one of my favorite technologies, as you well know, uh, biofuels. Does this pose an opportunity for that sector? Yeah, I look, I think this poses an opportunity for all sectors of innovation, and that includes small modular nuclear reactors, right? Like, I, you know, I, I think that this is something that, that is going to spur an enormous amount of innovation and progress that will actually have lasting, um, you know, results for, you know, terrestrial. Uh, purposes as well, right? I think a lot of the solutions that they're going to be chasing and, and supporting um, will end up helping you know the whole world. Certainly an important story because of its size and scope, but also because it gets us beyond the renewable electricity conversation and gets us into sectors that are in dire need of reform. So I'm going back to electricity, and I'm going to choose 100% renewable energy as the most important trend of the year. And I can't believe I'm saying this because I have been a 100% renewable energy skeptic for a long time. Not because I don't think it's important, but because I just think it's it's bad policy to hone in on just a few technologies long term. Um, so 2018 proved that messaging is far more important than policy details. And I've come around on the idea that 100% renewables is the build the wall of the climate movement. So let me just go through some examples that have come up in recent months. California, of course, had SB100, its big 100% clean energy target, and it expanded uh, economy-wide and opened up the door for a lot of other low-carbon technologies, not just renewables. So good policy there. New York just pledged 100% renewables by 2040. Governor Cuomo came out and made uh, an ambitious target. Uh, it's still unclear you know, what the policy mechanisms will be to get there, but certainly important that that just came out this month. Excel, the big utility in the Midwest, uh, announced 100% carbon-free electricity by 2050. So a little bit a little bit further out, but notable that it believes it can get there. Um, the D.C. City Council 
As Catherine mentioned at the top of the show, move forward with 100% renewable energy legislation and zero emissions vehicle legislation. There have been a ton of other um, announcements around the country, Boulder, Colorado, uh, cities throughout the United States. And then, of course, we have the Sunrise Movement which has been making a real impact on public discourse within the Democratic Party, putting pressure on party leaders to talk about the new Green Deal and to use 100% renewable energy as the platform. Uh, And that, that continues a trend from, you know, the 2016 elections when more Democratic politicians were calling for 100% renewables, but it's become way more ingrained. And this is meaningful for a few reasons. Beyond, you know, it shows that Good political sloganeering matters, regardless of policy. So I'm skeptical about a limiting policy. But as David Roberts astutely pointed out on our show some months back, this is the build the wall of the environmental movement. It's about having something that you can chant over and over again to change public perception. It shows that the academic debate, which I definitely love, around the feasibility of the policy is largely confined to wonky circles. Uh, it isn't actually slowing momentum. You know, the, the the political discussions are kind of different from the wonky policy discussions about how much renewable energy can we integrate? How much is enough? Uh, it's created this very powerful form of diplomacy that circumvents, circumvents the Trump administration, which, of course, has turned its back on the world with regard to climate change. And it's helped the United States keep up the appearance of being a leader and allows local officials from California on down to meet with other global diplomats and, and people from other countries to convince them that the U.S. is moving forward. So, again, I kind of have a lot of reservations about the the specific policy, but I have come around a bit more on the political impact, which is really what matters most at this point. Sounds like you and Mark Jacobson are going to go have a beer. (laughs) Well, I think Mark Jacobson's analysis is different from this. Uh, I would always love to have a beer with Mark Jacobson, but uh, to me, the debate about what you can do is still unsettled. And I'm convinced that it's important because it can change the political conversation, not because Mark Jacobson is somehow correct in his modeling. Yeah. And actually, um, Stephen, I don't love the comparison to build the wall because uh, that's an unnecessary thing, whereas 100% renewables is necessary to the survival of our planet. So uh, I love your, your thoughts about that being important, though, to have an aspiration and a slogan. And at least if we put policies in place that that head us in that direction, we'll be able to innovate and fill in the gaps. I would compare it maybe more to drill, baby, drill. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. I mean, it has support from across the political spectrum. The Yale Center on Climate Change just came out with a poll showing 81% of respondents across the spectrum, 64% of Republicans support 100% renewable energy. It's real and it has a real political impact. Well, and this is why it's so important to me for us to be more bipartisan and more apolitical. Like, I I just feel like there are forces that work at the federal government level that causes people to say all sorts of stupid things. But at the state level, the county level, at the mayor level, city council level, you know, people view this as the largest wealth creation opportunity and economic development opportunity for their area. And, you know, folks are working hand in hand to make this transition of, you know, the nation's infrastructure a reality. Coming up, the best energy journalism of the year 
And of course, we're going to have some podcast recommendations. Uh, we'll also have some predictions we want to be true, but we know will never happen. First, a prediction I know to be true. The grid will need more battery storage, a lot more. And that's where GE comes in. GE's new lithium-ion energy storage system, Reservoir, can cut construction time by 50%. It's modular, flexible, and comes shipped with the battery already inside. The Reservoir system brings decades of field experience and tech innovation into a simplified yet customizable battery solution. You can pair it with solar and wind, use it for microgrids, complement thermal power plants, virtually anything you can imagine. That is the power of GE's innovation. Check out the Reservoir system for yourself at ge.com slash energy storage. All right, let's open up those reading lists and those podcast apps and share some of our favorite energy stories of the year. Jigger, what kind of uh, energy-themed prose kept you riveted? Well, you know, a lot of people talked about climate change this year, and you know that's fine, and I really appreciate that. But honestly, I think that the story that most captivated me was the coal bailout that nobody was talking about by Joseph Daniel, which who's at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We t- we've talked about this article before. I, I just think that the underlying theme of the folks who are doing um, bad things, who are basically keeping the status quo going, who are keeping coal plants going, etc., um, will transition into a story of folks who are actually, you know, negatively taxing their ratepayers and their people um, because of their incalcitrance. And I, and my sense is, is that his article just really went through that in such great detail. Um, well, what did his article say? What was the argument? The argument was basically that, that coal plants that are owned by large utility companies um, that are rate-based are basically just running these coal power plants at a loss and socializing the losses amongst their ratepayers. Um, at a level of, you know, over a billion dollars a year. And it's just a lot of money, right? And it just, it, it, and it's something that I think, you know, we get accused of all the time of having this premium that wind and solar and other technologies cost. But I think that, you know, it's hard for people to understand that, that coal power plants are actually really expensive and that new coal power plants today, brand new ones that people are looking to build are now, suggesting it would be at 10 cents a kilowatt hour, which is just so high compared to the three or four cents a kilowatt hour that wind and solar can be um, generated at without subsidies. Catherine, you sent this article around, I believe. Uh, any reactions to the, the, the impact of that story? Yeah, I think Jigger's right on. That was a great piece. And he had all of the charts and data to back it up. Um, and that continues to happen. And it's tragic, of course, in addition to charging customers for what they're running, they're also still polluting the air. Well, and the other thing that I, that I would focus on is that this was the largest year in, you know, in modern times of shutting down coal plants. I mean, we're going to shut down, you know, I think 15.4 gigawatts of coal plants this year, um, which is fantastic. And I also think that this story brought a lot of attention to fossil fuel subsidies, um, and how pernicious they can be and how hidden they can be. Catherine, what is your favorite story or stories of the year? 
Yeah, so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about messaging around climate change and how do we talk about it and how do we bring everybody along and internalize it. And there's been a lot of out, lot out there that Jigger has said, uh, mentioned like this Paris to Pittsburgh TV show. Chris Hayes has covered how we think about climate with uh, David Roberts and Andy Revkin and how do we message about it. But the podcast that I really binged was Drilled by Amy Westervelt, who did all of the research, and she also hosted the show. And it's it's eight parts, but each part's only like 15 minutes, so it's super easy to get through. And it really talks about what happened to the messaging and how Exxon, mostly, but other companies too, knew in the 70s that this was happening, and they had data to back it up, and they made a conscious decision to change the narrative and to make everyone believe that there was uncertainty around climate change. And it just shows that you can embed yourself in an entire nation's psyche through educational materials, through research that you pay for at universities, um, and to have scientists put out reports that are that are good for your industry. Um, it just made me realize that this is not about getting the right facts out, really. We have loads of facts. We've always had facts. This has turned into kind of a religion and a belief system. And how do we change all of that for in the public, and then not just make the public be responsible, because it's not their fault. It's these 90 carbon majors that basically are producing 60 over 60% of the carbon pollution. So how do we get them those corporations um, to really take responsibility for what they've done. And it's just been fascinating to listen to and to watch all these discussions about you know, how do we talk about this better? How do we make sure that we embed it in everything we do? And I think there are a million different ways we have to approach it. It can't just be one way. Um, you know, One way is certainly the kind of article that Jigger mentioned, which is super powerful, and we can use that in our messaging. But there are a lot of other things we have to embed. Kudos to Amy Westervelt for that great series. It's called Drilled again, and it caps off some fantastic journalism over the last couple of years showing just how long the oil companies and the fossil fuel companies generally understood and researched climate change. Now, of course, the Inside Climate News folks, uh, and I think Reuters as well, broke a couple years ago that big uh, Exxon News story about how they had been you know, funding climate research for many decades and how they had buried the results. And earlier this year, Nathaniel Rich wrote that fantastic piece in the New York Times magazine about the lost decade for climate policy and how there was a moment in time decades ago when climate scientists, fossil fuel companies, and Republican politicians were all rowing in the same direction on doing something about climate change. And we lost that opportunity, partly because the fossil fuel companies decided to walk away from it and bury their research. So Amy Westervelt does a really nice job of capturing some of that and recapping a lot of the reporting that has been ongoing. So uh, I think it's just yet another great piece of journalism that adds to the body of work showing uh, how these these companies walked away from climate change and 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 completely changed public perception. 
So the one thing I would say is I, I've known about this story for a long time. Kurt Davies was on the podcast night like you, Catherine, also binge listened to it. It was so amazing. And I, I think I started at like 10 p.m. at night and just couldn't stop. And so I listened to it until midnight or 1230 in the morning. Um, and Kurt Davies is a close friend of mine. And, you know, I think Greenpeace broke into ExxonMobil's offices, I think, in 2003, maybe, and got a lot of this data and published most of it in 06. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that most of this information has been out there in its full glory for a long time. I, I think that one thing I want to caution people against is I think that the stories that we were close to regulating carbon were complete horseshit. And they were since the 70s. Like the notion that we were ready in the 90s to basically ban our way of life and the ability for us to use gasoline and diesel and to tax us to kingdom come at that point was just not there. And I think that the the counterfactual case has just not been made. And I, I just I want to make sure that people recognize that like like part of the reason I'm so hopeful today is that I believe that we all are more confident that the solutions that we have can scale cost effectively and give people the quality of life that they want to continue to have. I don't think that level of confidence existed in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, I do think, though, that those oil majors knew what the risk was to their business. And they did start moderately investing in alternatives like renewable energy, but they could have moved the needle. And instead, they decided, no, we're going to double down regardless of the risk that we know is there. So yes, you're right, the technologies weren't weren't ready yet. But this was a misinformation campaign that was that was quite carefully constructed. And I don't think that anyone is really arguing that we had all the solutions and that if we had somehow acted a couple decades earlier that um, it would have magically solved everything. What I'm hearing argued is that if a Republican like George H.W. Bush, who had an opportunity to engage in international negotiations, if he had engaged, it would have changed the context for negotiations, which would have accelerated the international politics and perhaps influenced domestic policy. So it's more about putting the political gears in motion that would have precipitated change rather than saying, oh, magically, we would have had all these these solutions right away. Yeah, but the reason I argue this point is is because I think that people have a hard time really recognizing why change occurs. And I would say that when the Senate voted 99 to 1 to prophylactically during the 90s say that we're never going to join Kyoto, and then um, and then George W. Bush actually pulled us out, is when many of the state-level initiatives that we were able to pass got passed. And I'm not sure that a lot of those initiatives would have gotten passed but for the, you know, pulling us out of Kyoto from George W. Bush. And so I just want to make sure people are cautious about what conclusions they're getting to. When you think about cap and trade for Sox and Knox, they were really only deployed on coal plants during the acid rain battles. And then when you think about the ozone layer, and we were really just talking about, you know, 17 companies that basically needed to get bought off to switch to HFCs. That's it, not the same thing as the carbon solution. And I, I just think that whatever solution set we would have potentially gotten to probably would have landed us in the exact same place we are now. And I wonder what we'll be saying about this era 
the Trump administration era when we've seen so much local action because of the Trump administration's policies. So if we look back, perhaps we'll see actually more action than if we had had a president who had stayed the course. Who knows? Who knows? Um, Okay, so I have a long list of best journalism of the year, so I've got to whip through them pretty quickly. But first, I'm going to recognize a journalist, not necessarily a single piece of journalism. I want to give a shout out to Ken Ward Jr., who's a veteran investigative reporter in West Virginia with the Charleston Gazette Mail. And he won a MacArthur Genius Grant this year for his investigative work on the coal extraction industries and its toll on communities there. Uh, And the MacArthur Fellowship said that they awarded Ward the award for, quote, revealing the human and environmental toll of natural resource extraction in West Virginia and spurring greater accountability among public and private stakeholders. Um, He is a masterful journalist. He's steadfast. He has faced so much pressure from coal companies. He just, to me, is one of the best journalists out there in this field. And I want to thank him for what he's done. And um, at a time when people are trying to figure out how to cover coal country from afar, he's one of the rare journalists who have been covering it for a long time and is unafraid to hold the companies accountable. So kudos to him. Yeah, he was awesome. Uh, It would be great to have a longer conversation with him about what he's been doing. Absolutely. All right. Well, I recently tweeted out my top five podcasts, energy themed podcasts of the year, and I will quickly run down that list in case people didn't see that on Twitter earlier this month. I presume a lot of you are not on Twitter. So number one, my number one choice, actually, let me go five to one. So number five was a two part series from 99% Invisible a podcast is just absolutely amazing on wildfires on how communities have dealt with wildfires for decades, how forest management and the way we build homes has changed the intensity of fires and what the human and economic toll of those fires is. And 99% Invisible takes a design perspective. So it's all about how we design communities and the operations around fire response and how that either improves or makes fires worse. So really important for this year, considering how devastating those fires were in California. Number four, the long-form podcast interview with uh, Nathaniel Rich, who wrote that New York Times Magazine piece, Losing Earth, about the lost decade for climate change. He talked to Max Linsky of Longform about how to think differently about reporting on climate change and breaking out of the barriers um you know, the, the, the tropes of climate reporting. And of course, uh, Nathaniel Rich was on our podcast. Unfortunately, Jigger missed out on that one. But Catherine and I interviewed him about that subject. And he had some really valuable insight into what how journalists should be approaching the subject. Number three was Reveal's two-part investigation about Tesla workplace injuries. And they did a follow-up. So they did one earlier this year. Uh, Elon Musk criticized it heavily on Twitter, attacked the investigative team. And then some other whistleblowers from within Tesla heard the story and came out and talked to Reveal and showed that Tesla was continuing to hide workplace injuries to try to push people through uh, as quickly as possible and not catalog the injuries correctly in order to lower its injury rate. And it's just very sketchy. And although Tesla is doing a lot of great things, we need to keep focused on abuses within any company. 
Number two was the NPR Embedded five-part series on coal country. Just a fantastic piece on uh, the how the coal country is faring under the Trump administration, the hopes, the dreams, the failures going on in uh, Appalachian coal country as you know, folks are excited about the Trump administration there. And then my top favorite show was from a good friend of the show, uh, Sam Evans-Brown of New Hampshire Public Radio, who hosts a great podcast, Outside In. And they recently did a two-part story on the history of the overpopulation debate. And it opened my eyes to how people have been talking about overpopulation as an environmental harm uh, and into the climate change debate, and how early on it fostered like a lot of racism and horrible ideas about how to control population within progressive environmental groups and actually cause quite a, a stir within groups like the Sierra Club as folks concerned about racial issues either implicitly or explicitly started proposing ideas of how to control population. So a lot of like really crazy stuff wrapped up into that story. Highly recommend it. I guess one thing I would say is I love those podcasts and I, I, I definitely have more to listen to because I, I don't have as big a, of a podcast repertoire as you do. But on the Tesla story, I do think we should dig more deeply into that. I think that while people were really hurt, I think that Reveal never made the case that Tesla was actually uh, worse than their peers on this. And my sense is, is that for us to hold every company to a zero tolerance policy to me is unreasonable. Um, I think this work is inherently dangerous, uh, whether it's building a solar farm or a wind farm or, or building electric vehicles. And I think, you know, we all should be cognizant of how dangerous it is. And I think it's through the good work of, you know, a lot of our safety officials, et cetera, that, you know, uh, more people don't get hurt. That's fair. But what was different in the first piece, they showed how Tesla had a higher workplace injury rate than other leading auto manufacturers. So there were clear numbers that showed that Tesla had a worse record. And then when they dropped that number and said they had one of the best records, Reveal showed how they were fudging the numbers to make that record look better. So I do think there's a unique story in there. But with that said, there, this is inherently dangerous work. We need to be upfront about that. Uh, but they're doing it at such a rapid uh, pace that Tesla feels a little bit unique within the auto industry. So, I mean, good on them for holding them accountable. But absolutely, there's a much bigger context here that we always need to keep in mind. Well, let's go into the final portion of the show and provide a prediction that we really, really want to be true, but we know will never happen. Catherine, what do you hope is going to happen in 2019 that you know whenever will? Well, so, so since I'm an optimist, I don't get to the second part of the sentence, which is which I know never will, because I'm always like, oh, yeah, this has got to happen because it's a good thing. So this is kind of pivoting off of the big announcement this week from the Transportation and Climate Initiative, which is a group of 12 states plus D.C., which have decided to cut transportation emissions and um, and along that entire mid-Atlantic Northeast corridor 
and you know make sure there's clean uh, infrastructure and clean transportation technologies. Um, it's like a cap and trade, and then all the funding from that is going to go back into to clean transportation programs. So I was super excited about that. I thought that was great, considering how often we drive up and down through New Jersey to get up to the Adirondacks. We really, really need that whole entire corridor in the Northeast to have clean transportation. And I thought, well, why not have this as a federal program? Why not have a federal cap and trade? transportation program that would be supported by an infrastructure bill. And that helps us take care of, you know, planning issues, like how do we plan our roads? How do we make sure we maintain the ones we have? And how how do we make sure we move them and transition them into a cleaner economy for the transportation sector? So that's kind of what I was thinking about is, like, if if the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic can do it, why can't, you know, like Oklahoma do it, right? Well, and Oklahoma really needs to do it, right? I mean, I think when you look at states like Oklahoma, Wyoming, and other places, I mean, that is where people are struggling the most to pay for their transportation costs. Um, and it's it's shocking to me that, you know, the states that have the highest transportation bills are the ones that are not actually proactively figuring out how to protect their citizens from, um, you know, from that by introducing new technologies faster. I got to say, Catherine, I just love your optimism. I love that (laughs) no matter, I mean, it's a great idea for sure. But uh, big political ideas like this, I've just resigned to probably never happening or not happening for a while. So I I love your optimism. That's why you do what you do. Yeah, that's right. That's why you're not in my line of work. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, Jigger, what do you really want to be true in 2019, but you know won't happen or probably won't happen? So I'm I'm with Catherine. I am going to provide a prediction that I think will happen because this is my line of work. I think that you guys like purposely <laughs> flout my rules. Like I always establish some sort of parameters, and you're both like, "Nope, I'm going to answer the question that I want to answer." So <laughs> anyway, continue. I, I think the top ten Republican donors of 2018 will invest at least $5 billion into clean energy solutions in 2019. I love it. <laughs> really? Okay, so how would that happen? So I think the Koch brothers have already invested. Um, you know, I think Sheldon Adelson, you know, showed his colors when he, you know, invested in that ballot initiative where he wanted to free himself from Nevada power in Nevada. Um, so, like, I think that it's not unreasonable. Like, you know, is it a stretch? Probably. But... You know, given the extraordinarily compelling returns that we're offering in the marketplace, I wouldn't say it's, you know, misplaced. So how would they invest then? Well, like the Koch brothers, for instance, invested in um, a biodiesel plant that uses really advanced technology that reduces the cost of making biodiesel by 50%. Uh, I think the facility is in Nebraska. Um, you know, but they're also investing, I think, through community solar developers in Minnesota, I've heard. Um you know, I think Sheldon Adelson could invest in, you know, $200 million worth of energy efficiency and combined heat and power and solar power for his casinos, right? I mean, there's, I, I think these are purely business decisions, but I think that wh- where we are today is that that the, the, our, our solutions are just so financially compelling that I think that's why I think that even though the rhetoric has gotten all hot and bothered at the federal level, that they're not actually removing electric vehicle subsidies or solar and wind subsidies or other things because they themselves want to benefit from them. 
Well, politics aside, the thing that just dismays me right now the most is the crazy engineering talent that goes to the big tech companies whose central mission is to just get us to click on more stuff, stare at our screens longer and buy more stuff. And so as we see more public outcry about the privacy violations of Facebook, uh, abuse problems with Twitter, corporate manipulation of Amazon, I would love to see a wave of young people at these companies stand up and leave their cushy jobs and start applying these crazy talents to the extreme challenges of the day, namely energy poverty, clean tech, decarbonization. And I just, I can only hope that the ethical dilemmas that these companies are creating for employees will result in some kind of meaningful shift in mission-driven work around the climate crisis. And that is something that I know probably won't happen in a big way in 2019, but I would love to see happen as we're probably going to see more scandals from these big tech companies. I love it. That would be wonderful. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I, you know, it's, it's sad to see our best talent. I'm not actually worried so much about the tech companies as much as I am Wall Street. Like, it just shocks me that we have so many PhDs in physics who want to work for a hedge fund instead of actually do some real work. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is all for us this year. If you're at a tech company, put this podcast on, blare the volume, put the speaker on your shoulder and walk on out and say, I'm done with this. I'm going to solve the climate crisis. Uh, you guys are all the gift that keeps on giving. Thank you. Thanks for listening every week, sending in your ideas and responses. Let us know on Twitter, speaking of big tech companies, let us know on Twitter what your picks are for yearly trends, uh, what prediction that you know will never happen do you want to come true. Let us know. And and can you help us out? Go to Apple Podcasts right now and leave us a rating and review. It'll be your gift to us. We appreciate it so much. And we're hooking you up with a little gift as well. You can get a subscription to GTM Squared with a $50 gift discount from now until the end of the year. You only have a couple weeks left. Use the promo code PODCAST over at gtmsquared.com. Jigger and Catherine, what energy-themed gift are you hoping to get this year? Catherine? Yeah, so not for me, but what I would like is that the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come, or the ghost of Bubby or whatever your religious affiliation is, pays a visit to every CEO of every carbon-emitting company so that they can see their ways and change in the new year. Mm. The the Jacob Marleys of decarbonization <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> clanging their fossil fuel their coal plants behind that's them. right <laughs> jigger what about you well you know as many of you know i installed a solar system with battery backup this year and it came with this uh lumen system that allows me to control my plug loads for my phone and it's been extraordinary right it's a great gift it's like like when i'm on travel or if you know, like both my wife and I are out of the house. Like I can just shut off all of our plug loads and not deal with vampires. It's, it really is fantastic. It's very empowering. Are you going to get like a, an Amazon Alexa to help you with that or a, an Amazon, some sort of smart speaker device? I don't know what you guys think about it, but I am so scared to death of Amazon and Google Home and all that stuff. Because I think they're listening to me all the time. Oh, they are. Yeah, I... I they are. I have a friend who does transcriptions for them, and the those devices are on all the time because they get triggered, and you, they just they constantly like hear conversations that they shouldn't be hearing. 
Yeah, it's a little, a little creepy. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever have a Amazon Echo or whatever that's called. Yeah, I simultaneously believe that they're going to be one of the most powerful tools for navigating the web and you know creating new consumer services, but I also am kind of frightened by them. So I know what's not coming to me this year, and that is probably one of those smart home assistants, even though I understand their power. Um, well, if we get any of those gifts, we'll certainly let you know, dear listeners. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We are the Energy Gang. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll catch you in 2019. Thank you.